This is Justice Voices, stories that need to be told, voices that need to be heard. Welcome to the Justice Voices program. For the benefit of those who may be joining us for the first time, one of the purposes of this program is to give people like me who have not experienced going to prison, being in prison, and re-entering community life after release from prison, the opportunity to get a window into what those things are like by hearing the stories of those who have lived those experiences or whose lives have been impacted as victims of crime or, as is often the case, both. Our guest today, Jennifer Stevens, is among those who have experienced both. Jennifer, welcome to our program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate that. Please introduce yourself and tell us a little about who you are today and what you're doing now. And I'm going to add for the benefit of those who are listening to the audio version of this program, those of us who can see you get a bit of a clue about what you're doing now from the <laughs> clerical collar you're wearing. So yes. please yes. tell us a bit about yourself. Absolutely. Um, like you said, my name is Jennifer Stevens. Um, I am now currently a what's called a local licensed pastor with the United Methodist Church. I'm in the ordination process to become an elder in the United Methodist Church, which is a many year uh, process. I've, um, I graduated from seminary um, in 2019. Uh, I now live here in Chicago. I am the senior pastor of Holy Covenant Church, uh, Holy Covenant United Methodist Church in the Lakeview uh, East and Lincoln Park neighborhoods of Chicago. Um, I'm also on the board of the Foley Free Campaign, and I'm also a coordinator for People's Liberty Project, which uh, we can discuss later if it's uh, of interest, uh, but those are the, the, the main things that I am currently doing. Well, and for anyone who's interested in learning more about the Foley Free Cam uh, Program and what it's about, you can go back to, I can't remember the episode number, but we did a couple of interviews with Marlon Chamberlain and with others from the Fully Free program. So uh, that those are, we encourage people who are listening to go back and, and listen to those. Now, let's move back in time. Okay. Uh, you've gone to prison before, right? Yes, I have. Yes. Multiple times. Uh, and so you have some lived experience that would be instructive to people who are listening, who have not had that experience, but also I think you've had some experiences and learned some lessons along the way that would be helpful to people who have had that experience. Yeah. So let's, let's go back in time and let's talk about what led to you going to prison. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background, your pre-prison background, and then we'll get into the prison experience. Okay. I, um, so it began by, uh, I, I was married, got divorced. I was a single mom with two children. Immediately following that marriage, I entered into a relationship with a, a man that was 22, 25 years older than I was. He actually was my boss at the time. Um, I had two toddlers. And uh, he um, put us, we were dated for a little while. And within just a few months, he um, invited me to live with him uh, in a house. And 
and provide for me and my daughters. And, uh, and so I did, I moved in, but pretty fast after that, uh, he became very physically, uh, abusive. Um, and, and with myself only, not with my daughters. Um, and in the attempts of trying to get out of that relationship by calling 911 back then, so this is um, early 2000s, um, back then there wasn't um, any programs for individuals who were experiencing domestic violence. Uh, there was no support. It was a huge, it's a stigma now, but it was even more of a stigma back then. Um, so I would call 911 and, and, and ask for help and he would call them back and tell them I was lying and no one would show up. Uh, so now, this hold it, happened. Hold it. I, I, I've got yeah. to stop you there and ask, I want to make sure I understand this right. Mm-hmm. You, the victim, yes. are calling 911 yes. because you're being beaten. Yes. And the perpetrator would then call 911 back and say, disregard because it's all a lie. And yes. they would believe that, and the police would never show up without yes. any investigation. Have I got that right? You got it correct, hundred percent correct. Um, and during that time, this was pre-officers um, having to go anytime a nine one one call was made. So now we have a law in place in most states. I think it's in all states, if I'm correct, that if a nine one one call is placed, that the police have to come and check what's what's going on. Um, but that was not in place at that time. It seems um, amazing that you'd have to pass a law to tell the police or some police. I, yeah. I, I can't believe that most police or dispatchers would respond that way, but that yes. there would be some enough that they would need to pass a law that would require don't believe the person who is accused of a crime mm-hmm. when they say, no, I'm not committing a crime and therefore fail to investigate yes. a complaint by a victim. Yes. yes. That's just amazing. But anyway, we hopefully we're past those days. I it, hope. Yes. It gets worse. <laughs> so I um, realized not having any help, there would be times that I would jump in my car to, to um, get away from him. Um, and so we would be drinking. Um, and, and the violence was, it wouldn't be just because he was drinking. Um, it could be just in the middle of the day, him coming home from work and, there was a dirty fork on the, on the sink. I mean, it was really that minute. Um, he would check to see if I made phone calls out, like making sure that I was totally excluded from friends and family. He would hit, cause back then, you know, he would hit the redial button to see who was my last person that I called. Uh, and if I called somebody that he didn't think I should be talking to, uh, then I would be beaten. Um, so it took me um, several months to get out of this situation. But during that time I would run um, and, and three of those times that I ran, um, I got, uh, I got pulled over, uh, for speeding and then for DUI. Uh, and so, uh, one of those occurrences, the, it was probably the third occurrence, the last one, um, before I was able to actually really get out, I was running from him. He was driving behind me, chasing me. I get pulled over the police officer. I have my children in the car. Um, so I was not drinking at this time, uh, but I got pulled over and charged with endangering my daughters, uh, because of the high speed I was going. When I got pulled over, I explained to the police officer that this man was chasing me, right? This man had so much, um, 
arrogance, I guess you would call it, that he actually pulled in front of me and parked and got out of the car and came back to talk to uh, the police officer. And uh, I share with him, see, I'm telling you the truth. He is chasing me. And the officer said, well, but I can't let you get back in the car with those children. I'm going to have to take you in. So he took myself and my daughters to jail, um, but did not arrest him. Um, so okay, now let me let me yeah. let me interject here. So he was he was going behind you, right? Yes, he was. He's chasing me. you. Yes. Okay, that suggests that you're both going the same speed. You would think, yes. You get stopped. <laughs> yes. He stops himself. Yes. Yeah, but okay. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. So, um, so I had, um, and so I was released, and I went back to that house, which was not the smartest in my my thoughts, but um, I eventually was able to work out a plan to to leave and called the, uh, had, had some phone calls with some friends that would, were going to come get me. Uh, and he was, he started doing some cocaine at that time. So on, on Friday nights, I knew when he got, when he would leave that he would not be back till the next morning. Um, and so as soon as he left, I called, you know, I had told my friend what time they were leaving and for him to come, come help me get my stuff. Um, so I was packing up my stuff, uh, getting prepared from, to come pick me up and this guy forgot something so he actually came back and caught me um packing um and so back then we had phones that were the wall phones right and um you have to turn it off or on the mobile phone you have to turn it off or on right the home phone uh and so i had called 911 and he thought he pushed off but he actually kept it on. And so the 911 operator actually heard me being beaten. So this time they actually sent the police and that's how I was able to get out of that relationship. Um, but during one of my DUI um, hearings, we, we went all the way with witnesses and uh, did a full hearing. They, the prosecution called this man as a witness against me for drinking and driving to ask if I was, had been drinking when I left the house. And so the man that I was running from <laughs> got to put me in prison um, for being convicted of drinking and driving uh, with DUI. So that was the okay. first instance of going to prison. And, and this being called as a witness was apparently some separate incident from when the police came to your home. Yes. Yes. So it was after, after I'd gotten out, after I'd gotten out of the house, then I was facing, cause I had been arrested three times prior to me being able to get out of the house. Right. Uh, three times I ran. Um, well, I ran more than that, but three times I got arrested for, uh, drinking and driving or endangering the, the, the last one did get thrown out. Um, but the other two DUIs or what sent me to, sent me to prison the first time. Um, so yeah, they called him as a, as a witness, um, against me, the, the claim that he saw me physically saw me drinking prior to me getting into the car. Um, yeah, so I got convicted. Am, Am I correct in assuming that was true? Yeah, it was. Yeah, I was drinking, but 
I was trying, I knew I didn't have police to come protect me, right? So I was just trying to get myself um, from into safety, right? To safety. Um, so, yeah, I absolutely was drinking. And apparently, uh, but, and yeah. apparently into the frame of mind to be willing to run. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So in any event, at the end of this trial, you were apparently convicted and you went to prison. Correct. Yes. Two years I was convicted uh, for two years. Um, or sentenced to two years. Um, and uh, while I was there, uh, I went to prison angry, extremely angry for being there. Um, and so that experience was different than the experience the second time around. So I went in there angry, um, didn't believe I should be there, right? So um, no programs um, to be a part of. Um, and so I came back, um, when I came out of prison, I came out of prison angry, still angry at what happened. Uh, and I, I would use the terminology that I got tougher, which meant I just stuffed it. And, uh, and I got, I just was extremely angry, um, but would stuff it. So you, it wasn't like just coming out all the time, right? Uh, I went 10 years without um, being arrested, never received another DUI. Um, and uh, it wasn't until another trauma uh, occurred that it all came to the surface um, and um, is what led me to prison 10 years later, back to prison 10 years later. Uh, so in between that, um, never saw that person again. <clears throat> Went to college, got an undergraduate degree and a Bachelor of Science, Exercise Sports Science. Um, moved to Southern California. My daughter's, uh, my daughter graduated high school. Um, my younger daughter and went off to college in Hawaii. Uh, and my younger daughter um, moved, decided to, at that time when her sister went off to college, decided that she wanted to go live with her dad because she didn't like living in Santa Monica. And so who, who wouldn't like living in Santa Monica? But uh, she didn't. So she went to live with her dad and that left me for the first time by myself. So I was a single mom uh, there since my youngest daughter was one. Uh, and so 17, well, 18 years later, I now am all alone, right? I have no, I, just me. So um, that, that was kind of the beginning of what I call the spiral downward, um, not realizing how much that would affect me, um, that every decision I ever made in my life was surrounded by my daughters. I didn't have my own identity. My identity was Stephanie and Sarah's mom. Uh, everything I did, I did for them. Every job that I got, every vehicle that I purchase whatever house or neighborhood I lived in um, was based on their needs. Um, and so when they left, it was this numbing feeling of what do I do now, right? Uh, and, and really plummeted into this uh, depression, um, but not just depression. The individuals that, that were my friends at the time uh, were individuals who drank a lot. And so I didn't have children around anymore. So what am I going to do when I get off of work? Because I don't want to go sit at the quiet house. That was just too sad. So I went to happy hours. So I was drinking. Um, I wouldn't say I was um, heavily drinking, but was drinking daily, right? Happy hours almost, I would say almost every day. Holding a job. I was, still, I was working. I uh, was actually working in clinical research. I was a coordinator uh, for pharmaceutical clinical research. Um, and so wasn't that I was going and taking shots and all that stuff in the evenings, but you know, go out, have a couple of beers because I just didn't know what else to do with myself. 
Um, and so this led to, um, I was at one of the bars on a Sunday watching football with my friends. I'm a Dallas Cowboy fan and there's a big, huge Dallas Cowboy fan group. And these were pretty much all the people that I was friends with. And so we did lots of things together, but we definitely watched the Cowboys play. And so um, I was leaving and going to get my into my car uh, from one of the games and the games was finished. Um, and I was assaulted. I was attacked in the parking garage, um, pulled inside a car and uh, sexually assaulted. Um, and I don't remember, um, I remember waking up to somebody being on top of me and passing back out. So I'm not really sure how I got there um, or really how I got out or how I got away. Um, the, the next memory I have is um, being in my, my apartment, um, getting ready, trying, trying to get ready for work, trying to go to work, because this was a Sunday night, so I have to be at work on Monday morning, and trying to get dressed. Um, <clears throat> and somehow, I went to work. Uh, I had my own office and closed my door and um, looked for a uh, rape crisis center. That was this immediate, like, that's what I was like, I was kind of in this numb space. And so I contacted them and they're like, you could come right now. And I said, no, I have to stay at work. I have to work today because I didn't want to tell anybody. I didn't want them to tell anyone what had happened. And so. And tell tell us about what that feels like. I, I mean, why is it that you wouldn't want to tell anyone? You've just been the victim of a sexual assault, a, yeah. a serious crime. You were the victim, because, but you didn't um, want to tell anyone. I think it's important I, to understand what was going yeah. on inside you. Yeah, it's because I didn't think anybody would uh, believe me. I didn't think anybody would help me. Um, I was afraid of what would what would be said about me if it was taken to court? Uh, what if my daughters heard? So I always thought, I remember I told you I got tougher. So I felt that I would always be able to protect myself, that there was nothing that anybody could ever do to me ever again that I couldn't protect myself. And the fact that I woke up to this and I could not move. So we don't know what, if somehow there was some sort of drug given to me, but I was paralyzed uh, and that I could not move. I couldn't fight back. Uh, and then either I passed out again or my memory is just, has been erased. <clears throat> so I think there was, um, definitely didn't want my children to know because I didn't want them to be worried about their mom. Uh, I didn't want my mother to know because she, um, I didn't want them to worry. Um, and it took many, many years for me to finally tell them what happened. Um, I don't even know if we really have had that really full conversation of all the details. They just know something happened to me. Um, but yeah, it was just, uh, it, it was from the experience uh, from 10 years prior that um, the police didn't, didn't help me, right? That it was always my fault. Uh, and uh, I had been drinking. So I was like, oh, they're, they're going to use that, right? And, and the fact that I had had DUIs in the past, I've seen, you know, I've seen what they've done to victims in courtrooms. And so I was like, I didn't want to drag my family through that. So I, um, I didn't, when I went to the rape crisis center, they uh, asked me if I wanted to do the kit for, if I decided at a later time to um, press charges. Um, but at this time I was not going to, but they did do a kit. Um, so that was extremely traumatic. Um, and then the friends that I had were not supportive. Mainly, 
and I want to say most of them were males and, and, and I don't know if that's why they weren't able to be supportive, but um, I kind of got pushed out of the circle. They didn't want me to come to the meetups anymore to the group because they were afraid that I might uh, freak out and get upset because it happened after me leaving. Uh, and that was one of the excuses. Um, and then they asked, well, are you sure it really happened? Cause you were drinking. So, you know, those kind of things. So I didn't really Seriously? have much support. No, I'm serious. I'm a hundred percent serious that that's what it was said to me. Are you sure that it really happened? Uh, and that because you were drinking, you know, are you sure that they actually uh, assaulted you? Um, so yeah. And uh, oh, yeah, yeah you, they, you were drinking. So you just hallucinated. I, yeah. Uh, and the rape test shows that I act, you know, there's certain ways that they can tell whether or not that it was forced. And so, and then I had bruising uh, and cuts and things like that too, uh, on on my face and on my arms, um, and then other places where they could tell that it was a forced, a forced rape. Um, so yeah, it was uh, it, obviously traumatic. I had PTSD, um, extremely bad, extremely bad. I couldn't go in, couldn't even go by a garage, uh, you know, a parking garage. Um, and then this individual had stolen my phone too. <clears throat> and somehow, so I went and got a new phone, but the same phone number. And somehow, I guess because he had my phone, was able to see what my phone number was. And this individual actually called me either a week or two. It, it, my memory is not so great. Uh, a couple weeks later and acted like as if we had went on a date somewhere. <laughs> um, it was really odd. Uh, and was so there somebody that you knew? No, it ended up being... Um, the valet at this bar for the parking garage is who ended, who was the person that raped me, that we found out that that's who it was. Um, How did you find that out? From the police. We um, were able, I, I could remember uh, the name tag. I like certain pieces came back to me about what, who the person was after he had called. And I heard the voice like, so I still didn't call immediately, but then my children were coming in for Thanksgiving and my fear was, cause this person called me a couple of times. My fear was that my daughters would be in the city and that he could harm them. Uh, and that's when I reported it. That's when I went to the police and said, this is what happened to me. I, and I met him at the rape crisis center and we, um, but by the time they got around because people were already talking that uh, my, my so-called friends were already talking and they actually told the management at the bar that I said that it was one of their um, uh, ballets that raped me. And so that person ran, that person ran and they never arrested him, never found him. Um, and then I, um, so I was, um, I ended up um, being fired from my job because I could not function any longer. And I wouldn't tell my job either um, just cause I was, I, I, I just felt like nobody was going to believe what I said. Um, and so I didn't share, which I should have. Uh, and, and six months later I was fired because I just couldn't function. Uh, I mean, the PTSD was so bad. I'd go into my office and just cry, uh, uncontrollably. Um, okay. So, so yeah. right, right now, uh, as we're talking here, uh, yeah. this is uh, <clears throat> mental health and trauma awareness month. Yeah. Okay. You experienced serious trauma on multiple yeah. levels by this time. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so far, other than the people at the uh, the rape crisis center, uh, you haven't been describing any trauma-informed care. None. Or friends who were seem apparently so-called friends who were capable right. of anything other than adding to the trauma. Yes. Adding, uh, being anything but friends. You yeah. mentioned some of them were men. Well, my own editorial comment, they may have been males, but that's the, not the way that men yeah. treat women or have attitudes toward women. They yeah. should have been, if anything, feeling protective, not blaming you. you I mean, for thought. crying out loud. I mean, this is, yeah. I mean, in my world, uh, this is just something that it's hard for me to wrap myself around. But I've been a prosecutor long enough to yeah. know, unfortunately, the story you're telling is all too common. Mm -hmm. That women experience traumas like this, they're victims of crimes like this, mm -hmm. and then the trauma is compounded by the way people respond to them as victims of the crime, as if they are somehow... Uh, what would be the word? Uh, part of the problem, or or uh, accountable, or lying, or something like that. And and children experience this when they're the when they're the victims of domestic abuse. And so, this is a month where it's important for people who are listening to listen up, pay attention, and when somebody reports uh, some traumatizing experience. Take it seriously. Assume it is true until proven otherwise, not the other way around. Right. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So after getting fired, I decided that, uh, and I just couldn't, I wasn't, I wasn't, my, I mean, I had high blood pressure from PTSD. I, medically, I was doing bad. Um, I mean, it, so I decided to leave the Santa Monica, Los Angeles area, that it would be in my best interest not to that maybe if I move that I would be able to heal, but I still didn't have like, um, I had from the rape crisis center, a person I was talking to, uh, a therapist. Uh, and so, but I moved, I decided that I needed to, I needed to get out of the city and out of the state. And so I went to Texas and, uh, that's where I had went to high school and, and, and most of my life had lived, um, from the age of 12 until adulthood. Um, and so my sister was still in Texas and I decided that I would get back to Texas, that I would just move, move to Texas and everything would be okay. And, uh, one of my friends had, um, moved there as well. Um, but I just, and I started going to church. I was, I joined all the things. I did all the Sunday school classes and was showed up to everything. But then I was also drinking, right. Trying to cover up the pain I was drinking quite a bit. I was also running. I was training for a marathon at this time too. So trying to do all these different things to help me overcome whatever had happened to me, but not seeking mental health care, right? Uh, just trying self, to- Self-medicating with alcohol. Right, alcohol, exercise, and church too, right? Like thinking, if I go check off all these boxes and I just show up that uh, all will be well. Um, I suspect but, that exercising and church are not what led to you going to prison again. Nope, they are not. It was the drinking. It was the drinking, the covering up of uh, the trauma. 
And so because I had such trauma, uh, if, while out drinking, um, it, it always seems that things happen in threes to me this time. I just, I just recognize that. The last time I was arrested three times, this time I got arrested three times. Uh, three times within probably a couple months span uh, in different counties even. So in Texas, all in Texas, all in Central Texas, but in three different counties, um, I was arrested. Um, always resulting from me being out having a drink and somebody approaching me, either touching me, um, grabbing my arm or some guy inappropriately touching me. And the rage would come out of where I wasn't able to defend myself that night uh, that I was assaulted, that I would be damned that I wasn't going to defend myself now. So then the police would get called. And the same thing, they would, I would like jerk away from them. Um, and I would catch that charge, right? I would catch the charge of uh, assault on a police officer. So this happened three times. Uh, the first two times, um, again, I was working in clinical research. I was living in Texas, working in clinical research, um, making really good money. Uh, and so um, would call my parents and say, can you bail me out and I'll give you the money or, you know. So two times it happened. On the third time that it happened, um, that I called my parents and said, don't, don't take me out. I'm not coming. Uh, something's wrong and I need to fix it. And I don't know how to fix it. If we keep, if I keep just coming back home. Um, and so this was the thought process at the time. I, looking back, I know how, how terribly wrong that was, but uh, only because I, I'll share more. But so I decided that I would stay um, in jail and fight my case from in jail. Uh, and that I wasn't going to spend any money on an attorney this time, that I was going to get a court-appointed attorney. Big mistake. Um, big mistake. Because uh, um, yeah, inside of jail, it's almost impossible to actually get fair, um, get a fair um, sentence or, or even be defended fairly. Um, because immediately it's wanting to just give you a plea bargain. They don't care whether you did it or not. They don't care the circumstances behind it or mine did not. So my attorney, uh, did not care whether or not. Um, so I had the other two times, right? The other counties, I paid for those attorneys. <laughs> uh, but this time I said, no, I'm not paying. And I'm just, you know, basically trying to punish myself. I'll just put myself in prison, right? Like I'm just. I'm, I'm, I don't need to be outside and, you know, I need to be locked up, right? All the, all the um, horrible things we tell ourselves uh, that we're at fault for all these things, right? Um, so I sat in prison for six months uh, going to court on three different charges. Uh, but in the state of Texas, you, um, they will only have you go to court on your last charge until you get till you get sentenced then you get if you get sentenced you get sent into prison and they pull you out to go back to the other ones they write a writ you got to go back out uh so uh i was sentenced on um so the one that i had the court appointed attorney uh, wanted me to sign seven years i never had a felony before the duis are misdemeanors so and it was 10 years prior right? 10 years prior um and uh so they wanted me to sign for seven years. I refused. And one thing about being in prison, you have a lot of people who have a lot of uh, law understanding and, and, and shared that I should ask for a, um, to be sentenced by the judge, that that would be my best 
that. This did not come from my attorney. <laughs> These came from uh, other individuals who were incarcerated at the same time fighting their own cases. Uh, In other words, every, you, you really every, mean tried by the judge, am I correct, yes, rather than correct. by a jury? Yes. Mm-hmm. Right, correct. Uh, and so the day that I showed up uh, for, for the be tried by the judge, then I uh, was given um, three years instead of seven years. Uh, and so that's what I ended up being sentenced to is the three years. Um, and then um, I was denied uh, parole based on my charges because assault on a public official. Uh, and at that time, individuals, it was at the beginning of this time that, uh, so this was 2013, uh, 2013. And in 2014 um, in Texas, uh, police officers were under attack being murdered. Uh, two police officers were sitting in a um, fast food restaurant and somebody walked in and just shot him, shot him in the head uh, just for the fact of them being police officers. So even though I didn't have a violent charge, I didn't, I didn't have, or it was a violent charge, but I didn't have a, a charge with a weapon, uh, no attempted murder, no murder, right? But I was still treated as if I was. Um, I was. I was locked up with those that had attempted murder and were murderers. Uh, I was put on... Um, segregation and I was, I had to be handcuffed everywhere I went. Um, now, why was that? Was that because of your behavior in prison? Nope. No, I was a why? specific beha- uh, because uh, nobody likes when somebody comes in that has beat up police officers. You're, uh, um, you, so I got classified higher than what I probably should have been classified, not because of anything I had done wrong, uh, but because uh, the, the warden, classified me uh, as, as, uh, as violent. And even though there's nothing, there's nothing on my record whatsoever that said that I ever committed any violence whatsoever in prison. Um, but I did get finally, um, after probably again about six, seven months, I finally got out of uh, not being in segregation and being put in a regular, but it was only because I went out. Uh, and when I came back in, I got reclassified. And this time they reclassified me at a lower so I can be in regular population. Uh, but every time you come back in, they always put you in segregation for like two weeks anyway. Uh, it can last up to a month uh, of regular. Anybody coming into the prison system can be, will be put in uh, segregation in the beginning uh, until they classify you. And however long that process takes is how long you're in there. Uh, and run all the tests, make sure no TB, all that stuff. Um, so, so segregation, you're alone. Yeah. Yeah. You're alone. On your but- own and alone. Yeah, and then you got people in cells next to you, and, and a lot of the mentally ill individuals are in those cells, uh, either waiting to get transferred to the actual unit for individuals experiencing uh, some mental illness. Uh, and so it was very, very, very chaotic. Um, and traumatizing. And extremely traumatizing. You couldn't, uh, you could only have one phone call. You could go only go out um, into a little blocked area for. You're supposed to get an hour a day, but I don't. I don't think we got an hour a day. And then you're handcuffed uh, to go to the shower, uh, and handcuffed to come back from the shower. Um, there were these these little single cell stalls for a shower, uh, and then handcuffed back. Right. Uh, so, yeah. It was, well, I can't. It was, I can't help but think about the role of trauma in the path that you know the common <laughs> denominator in the path that you've just described. Trauma early on, leading to behaviors. Uh, self-defeating types of behaviors mm-hmm. and being victimized, trauma uh, compounded 
uh, the PTSD, a reaction, natural reaction to trauma, um, and the behavior that that uh, caused you to end up going to prison because of behavior that was rooted in trauma and prison traumatized being a traumatizing experience on top of all the other trauma. Mm -hmm. So, so far I'm hearing about a lot of trauma and not a lot of problem solving to deal with the trauma underlying this whole story. Yeah. Yeah. Thankfully, uh, prior to going to prison, because I was a part of a church, um, they uh, supported me 100%. So because they came and visit, when I was in jail, they came to visit. They wrote letters to uh, the judge. They, um, these are pastors and lay people, people that were in a Sunday school class with me or volunteering with me on Sunday mornings, feeding breakfast to the community. Uh, whatever it is that I was doing, um, these people came up for me and spoke up for me. And like I said, the pastor would visit me while I was still in the jail. Once I went off to prison, then they continued writing letters weekly. I got letters from him all the time and he would update uh, the other pastors and, and the, the congregation of how I was doing and what was going on with me. And, and so many of them would also send me cards and letters and of support and encouragement. Um, you know, so I was extremely um, supported uh, from the outside family. My parents supported me, um, my sister, my brothers, my cousins. Like I had so much support while I was in prison, which not many people have. You know, no, that's um, true. I, I was I was one of the lucky ones. So uh, I didn't have much, but I did have, uh, you know, people um calling me and, and people who it. knew you and who believed yeah. in you yeah. as you. Right. Exactly. Not who were defining you by your behavior. Right. When you were reacting to right. triggers uh, right. that yeah. traumatized people can react to very, a variety of triggers in ways mm -hmm. that can other people who don't recognize what's going on can can just label them as well. This person's just a, uh, she's a wild lady, you know, or, yeah. or she's disrespectful of police officers yes. or, or this yes. is someone who this or that, whatever right. it may be. When in fact the underlying problem goes unrecognized or even if recognized unaddressed. Right. And prison was supposed to what? Solve that. Right. Right. That, okay. That's just not a rational approach to problem solving, which is what I, uh, it's, it's okay. There are other episodes where I talk about, we need to shift from a punishment paradigm to a problem solving paradigm. Yeah, absolutely. But anyway, again, it's your story that we want to hear. Yeah. Not, not my, not my, <laughs> uh, public safety policy preaching. <laughs> okay, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. So I, um, so I had this support uh, and also decided that, I, you know, I remembered the last time that I went into prison angry and that this time I was not going to do that. And so I decided that there was going to be, I was going to kind of experiment while I was in jail this time, instead of reacting and fighting and uh, allowing that kind of rage to come out, that I was going to learn how to meditate. I was going to read the Bible and I was not going to fight. I wouldn't. If I needed to protect myself, I would protect myself, but I wouldn't just be drawn into it from words. 
And so that's what I did. Um, I really found a place of being able to meditate for an hour um, in the midst of this chaos, right? Screaming and yelling and banging and fighting and whatever was happening around you, right? Um, and, and that really what helped me, uh, helped me through prison, but also helped me uh, be able to be somebody new when I was released from prison. So uh, also the support of the pastor was extremely important. Um, I remember when he came, and this is really foundational in, in what my ministry is now. Uh, when he came to see me, probably one of the first or second times, I was so upset and distraught that I was saying, you know, I was doing all the right things. I was checking all the boxes. I was reading my Bible. I was doing, you know, and, uh, and he just said, you know, Jennifer, God loves you for who you are right now. Not who you're going to be tomorrow. Not, not who you were yesterday, but you right now in this very moment, God loves you. And that was like mind blowing to me. Right. How, like, how did that I, make you feel when he said that? Yeah, just absolutely, like, seen. I finally felt seen for the first time, like, that I didn't do anything, like, obviously I did something wrong that got me there, but I mean, like, me trying to fix it meant that that I couldn't fix it myself is really what came to my awareness at that time was that that I had to just let go and try to um, get help to be able to um, to heal from this. And so now, that to to my thinking, based on my experience, God must have been speaking to you. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, God was definitely uh, with me, and 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 through that whole experience, God definitely worked, walked with me while I was there, and was was what gave me my calmness in the midst of some pretty terrifying moments uh, of prison. Because prison is not. Um, you know, uh, an easy space. So even when I did finally get out of um, segregation, the first um, space I was in was with 56 other women in a dorm um, with no air conditioning in the heat of summer of Texas. Um, so a lot of anger would come out of people there, uh, you know, being hot, being miserable and being locked up all the time, uh, not being able to get away from it. Um, and so there's quite a bit of uh, chaos, uh, and then the 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 prison I did the most time in the the unit I did the most time in had twenty six beds, uh, and it was considered the worst of the of the lower charges of individuals. It was considered the worst unit on on that campus, <laughs> the one that I was in. Uh, so there was a lot of fighting. There was a lot of a lot of this stuff happening. Things I saw. Um, the only time that I uh, actually had to pin my hands on somebody was in that unit because they had uh, my bunkmate pinned up against the wall and literally were going to kill him. And so I grabbed a hold of this person to pull them off him, uh, which is a huge no-no, which really put my life in danger for uh, the rest of my time there uh, because I uh, got into the middle of a... a a fight that I was not supposed to be in the middle. But at that point I was like, I'm not gonna sit on my bunk and watch somebody be murdered. Um, and again, I feel like it was that I had this protection from God. I, I didn't know it at that time, but I obviously, uh, I, I never got harmed. I didn't get in segregation or any of that to protect me. Um, but I, uh, I survived 
Um, I never went outside again <laughs> until I was released because it, you couldn't go outside. It was too dangerous for me. And I had people who would uh, protect from the front of me and the behind me when we'd go to chow. Um, so it was a very, very, very difficult, challenging uh, time from that point on. Um, but then I was released. I was denied parole. Um, and then they messed up my out date. And so I was supposed to get out a month before. Uh, and instead, I got out on June 4th, 2015, um, three days after my daughter graduated high school. So I missed her high school graduation because they messed up my dates and would not correct them. Even though they agreed that they were wrong, they still went, by the time they could get me out it, to fix it, they got me out um, June 4th. So it's a few days after my daughter graduated high school. Okay, so let's talk about <clears throat> when you got out. Okay, so yeah. you're, was there anything uh, within the system that you were in that would help prepare you for release? And what to expect? Any sort of warm handoff to some support organization or anything of that sort? Tell us about that. I mean, so, what did um, happen and what didn't happen? Yeah. And so while I was in prison, I was a part of a, um, a, what helped me heal while I was in prison. I was part of what's called Br Bridges to Life. And it's an organ. It's a, so it was originally... Uh, um, founded by a man who his daughter was murdered. Uh, and so this was specifically for men uh, that had uh, had violent crim crimes. So like uh, murder or attempted murder or some sort of gun violence uh, that led them to prison. But then it was opened up to all people. And it was a three month program where you would have individuals come in and um, give impact statements so how they were impacted by the crime that was committed either toward them or because their ch their family member was murdered or whatever happened right so they come in and they share that how how the crime that you commit had caused this trickle down effect to it's not just the individual that you harm but the other people that are involved in that so the program first uh, makes you uh, recognize the harm that you did right take responsibility and accountability for your own actions, no matter what led you there, right? Account and understand how this could have affected not just the person, the individual that you committed the crime, but their family members. And so for me, I assaulted a police officer. So now um, a family member might be even more fearful of their, of their loved one going out each time that they go to work because they have now been assaulted, right? No matter what the assault looked like, that they had actually been assaulted. Uh, and so thinking about how that affected if they had children or their spouse or their mother, their father, right? To really understand that what, no matter what the reason was that you committed the crime, that there was still some other people are harmed by, by other than just the one individual. So to take Police officers, uh, it's a profession in which they experience a lot of trauma. A lot of traumatizing experiences. PTSD is common. Yeah. My, and so um, you have victims encountering victims. Yes. And that's not always a good outcome in that. Uh, and actually, my uh, brother-in-law, uh, who has been uh, as close to me as an actual brother, um, is a was is retired police officer. And when he retired, he was actually retired chief of police. Um, I met he uh, I met him when I was 15 years old. He was dating my sister. Uh, they they got married. They've been married ever since. And this man has been 100% supportive of me 
uh, all the way through um, this process that I've been in. Uh, when I say I have an amazing family, I have an amazing family, right? Um, I think so some of I'm, the people who most understand what you're talking about are the seasoned, the more yeah. the more senior police officers, people yeah. with the heart and the head to yeah. to get a, to get a bigger picture and to see well and ask themselves what's going on here what are we doing how are we doing i mean is this really the best way to deal with things and so if he was a chief of police he probably had a problem solving sort of yeah. mindset you know and uh, so anyway i'm glad you had some have somebody yeah. like that in your life from the police side of things the law enforcement <laughs> side of things yeah um, yeah and, yeah, so I and can from see the, the church side, yeah, yeah. yeah it's just so, the opposite. You, it's yeah. not all. Uh, and, all and by the way, there are defense attorneys who do a very good job. No, I know. I do. I, I had some good defense attorneys, but this that one, like I said, was was just doing the least that he could do because he was on the rotation. Take. Yeah. Well, that's what yeah, happens when so. people are overworked and yeah. all that. Yeah. Okay, so tell us about day one. Day one, so, you, the prison doors open up and you walk out. Yeah, I had a, 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 my parents lived in North Carolina, so we made arrangements for a friend that lived in Austin to pick me up. Uh, and, and I was going to go stay with another friend that uh, was part of a church in Austin for the first um, uh, couple, I don't know, a month or if I stayed three months. I really can't remember. It's really, which sometimes I'm thankful for that, that I can't remember. But day one, so... Um, they give you your clothes, uh, or they let you pick out some clothes to put on your back. Um, you take what what you want to take with you, right, at, from your prison experience. Um, any money? Use. I did not receive any money. No, I received no money. Mm -mm. So uh, basically, you walk out of prison with the clothes on your back, no money. <laughs> They'll give you a bus ticket if you need a bus ticket. But I had okay. a, a person actually picking me up. So they will give you a bus ticket. Um, and... Yeah, everything you got to figure out on your own. So finding um, uh, housing, like if you're being paroled out, that's all on you to write the letters to find a housing. There's nobody there to support you and help you do that. Uh, I came out on what was called mandatory um, release, um, where you have to still check in with a parole officer for, uh, I think it was three months, um, right? Yeah, six months maybe. Uh, and I had to yeah and so then i was required to take some classes and so that was so my first day i get picked up and you have to check in within 24 hours of being released um with your officer you have to go immediately straight there um so you go from being locked up to sitting in a, another very traumatizing experience of feeling locked up again you know you're getting patted down they're asking you to pee in a cup and you know so it's uh, it's it's pretty traumatic you know it's not uh you're happy to be out right you're happy to have freedom which we really don't that's the whole point of fully so free. you're not you're not fully free yet you are not fully free um until this day i'm still not fully free i'm no longer on parole i'm not on any type of thing but uh and i'll explain that more in a minute but yeah so first day uh you get you got to go check in uh and then uh because of my uh, my charge uh i had to take um an anger management class with other people who are recently uh incarcerated who had just been released happened to be a room full of men who had done everything from um, murdering their wives and girlfriends. I was the only female in this class uh, and with multiple violent offenders, uh, people that had previously 
So them sharing the stories, not that I, I didn't see them as the, the trauma was in the stories they were sharing, right? So we're sitting in, in a, a group to share the, the, what we did or whatever, right? That brought us to this thing. And so not the individual, I didn't think that, that I wasn't traumatized by the individual or thinking I was fearful of the individual that was sitting next to me. So I don't mean it in that sense. I mean, because they had to share their story of what they had done was then traumatizing to me because I'm a female sitting in this room listening, which should never have happened. They should have divided us. Like I truly believe like that was a space for men should have been sharing men. Women should be sharing women. But well, even then, even then again, this gets back to this theme that is developed over in this and, and, and virtually every other mm-hmm. episode of, of this program of trauma. And if, if a person is designing a program or a group of people are designing a program for people who they recognize that much of this criminality is rooted in large measure in trauma and, and the effects of trauma in people's lives, including in, in effects on the brain even, mm-hmm. and the way they perceive things, the way they behave. All right, you the last thing you want to do is to put them into some <laughs> therapy thing or something of that sort that is traumatizing. Yes. Yes. Right? I mean, yes, you would think, to me, right? this yeah. just, okay, this is yeah. like basic thinking. And yet <laughs> when people are not trauma aware, yeah. with all the best intentions, they can compound the trauma yeah. and compound the problem right. rather than solving the problem. They're just missing the point. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. So, uh, yeah, so I had to go through some of those. And then I, um, so I was arrested in Fort Worth, but I came out and went to Austin. Well, I was able to get permission to move back to Fort Worth because I wanted to reconnect with the church because we had already started talking about, I believe I had a call of ministry, but I hadn't, we were in trying to really discern what that looks like, right? To really uh, hone in on what I was truly called to do. Um, And so I went, moved back to Fort Worth, um, was uh, able to get a job um, that I worked at for a year. And then the tr- then I started working for the church after that first year. So I went to, but there was no programs that, uh, that I came out, no reentry programs. I wasn't introduced to any reentry programs. I wasn't given any of that information. I don't know if it was because I didn't come out on parole, if that's why I wasn't aware of any of those, but I had none, I had none of those, uh, that information other than what was required by me to do uh, by, um, by the state. Um, so sink or swim. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Uh, and then make sure you pay your, make sure you get a job, even though you you can't get a job because, um, you, you have a felony. So I can't go back into the medical field. Um, and you know, um, yeah, it is hard to get housing. It's hard. I, I was lucky to find, um, a, a private landlord who gave me a chance and let me move in. Uh, even though I have this, I was just released from prison with a violent crime, right? Um, so now you've you've just mentioned two things that are obstacles. When I mean the whole idea of sending someone to a correctional facility mm-hmm. is that somehow they will come out corrected. Yeah. Okay, so in the first place, it's, there's this idea that if you put people who 
have committed criminal acts and the concentrated company of people who have committed criminal acts, that they're going to come out less inclined to commit criminal acts than when they went in. Yes. Okay, that's not completely rational to start with. And then you expect them to now uh, pursue a law-abiding life when there are, because of their criminal record, fewer opportunities or alternatives to crime, like employment, housing. In other words, if you're, if you're looking at this from an incentives perspective, it's no wonder we have a problem with recidivism. Because if, you're, or if you have fewer alternatives to crime when you get out of prison than when you went in, yeah. it's not surprising that people end up cycling back for one reason or another. And sometimes they cycle back for administrative reasons because they couldn't find a job yeah. and because they couldn't find housing, so they send them back to prison. Right. Exactly. Okay. What's wrong with this picture? Right. Right. Okay. It's where the, I, well, I have an opinion on that. I believe they want us there. Um, Tracy in Texas has private prisons. So, you know, they're making money for every bed that's filled. So that's a whole nother thing. Um, I was in one of those. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it, there's, there, there's a lot of problems uh, with mass incarceration and, and um, correcting it. But as coming out, um, even to this day, I have, uh, pro I had problems finding employment. So I, uh, I was able to work at a job, um, how I made it again, how I got the job. I don't know, because later on when they found out that I had a felony, which I thought they knew because, you know, I thought they did the background check and I got hired anyway. Uh, they, I had was told that, I don't know how you got hired. Like we don't hire people with felonies. <laughs> it's like, well, I'm here. Uh, and so the manager is the one who found out, but she didn't, she didn't go ahead and release me because obviously I was doing such a good job. And so she knew me more than just my, what was on that piece of paper. So as soon as somebody gives you a chance and doesn't look, don't use that to and gets to know you first, instead of just looking at what's on you, then typically you're going to find that it, it, they're human, first of all, and they deserve to have all the rights that everybody else has. They've already served their time. Um, or I had already served my time. I shouldn't keep continuously being um, convicted over and over again, um, which continues to happen. So I- um, and, what, what Marlon Chamberlain and Foley Free call permanent punishment. It's permanent punishments continuously. Um, and when I went to apply for um, graduate school, uh, so I went to, to graduate school, it's a seminary, uh, that they had to have a special meeting interview with me because of my background um, to determine whether or not uh, they thought that I should be uh, admitted into seminary. Uh, they had to have a panel that then discuss uh, the, the interview that I had to make a decision on whether or not I should be uh, interviewed. So it's a constant, I have to explain myself. I have to explain to them that I'm actually good enough or smart enough or I should be here, right? Um, that it shouldn't well, now, matter. You know, that, frankly, that's not irrational. I mean, yeah. no, I know. I, but, I, and but, yet at the same time, hopefully the people who are asking the questions are doing it yeah. in the spirit of, okay, there's some explaining that needs to be done, but we're open to the explanation yeah. and knowing, and most importantly, it's, <laughs> you're not defined by what you have done in the past. Yeah. How are you different today, and why are you different today? Right. And fortunately, you're going into a, uh, a, a line of ministry 
right. in which hopefully the people have that sort of mindset, I would hope. I, I've, I've ran into some that do not, but so far, so, I, you know. Uh, well, you've got the collar on, so that's a good sign. I have sign. a collar on. I am here now, right? Uh, so I was allowed to to attend, and uh, in the United Methodist Church, you also have to what's called enter into candidacy. And so you have to be approved for that. First, you have to be approved by your congregation. They have to say, yes, we believe that she is called to be uh, whatever. So in the United Methodist Church, there's a local pastor, there is a deacon and an elder. There's also some lay ministry stuff as well, but ordination is a deacon or an elder. Uh, And an elder is what I believe that uh, God has called me to. And so to continue to get affirmations that you're called to this. So your congregation first is the first step your pastor and your congregation that has a committee, they have to say, yes, you are, uh, we believe you are called to be a pastor, to be an elder in the United Methodist Church. Uh, And then you go in front of another committee uh, that then says, yes, we believe that you're called to be an elder in the United Methodist Church. Or at this point, the very beginning is a candidate for, uh, so then you have to go to seminary uh, for three years, get a master's of divinity, which I did, uh, and continue each year to interview. Uh, but then during that process, there's a thing called being licensed. So you go to a, uh, a United Methodist training for licensing as a pastor. Uh, so I am currently licensed as a pastor as I continue to go through the ordination process. And so I uh, entered into a seminary and the ordination process in 2016. I graduated um, seminary in 2019. During that process, there's a thing called clinical pastoral education, uh, where you're to be a chaplain uh, in a hospital, in a hospital setting. I applied, was accepted, uh, but their human resources denied me because I had a felony on my uh, background and said that I could not come into the program uh, and be a resident. It's called being a resident at, uh, in a hospital as a chaplain, that I could not uh, have that position. Um, and so it continues to, uh, even as a minister, as a, you know, uh, that you're not, you're still having options taken away from you. Um, when I moved to uh, Chicago and I was just trying to find a job, I won't say the name of the place, um, but it is a reentry. They do do reentry. And um, I was hired to do this, a, a position. Uh, but then human resources again uh, came back and said, nope, she has this felony and uh, we're not going to hire her. I'm like, but you do reentry. So that's a whole nother thing. Um, there's many, many great reentry programs here in Chicago. Um, so uh, there's just happens to be one that has some issues. But anyway, so it continues to, even with me having now a master's degree, uh, I have gone to try, uh, when I first moved here in 2019 to get an apartment, I was denied because I have a felony. Um, and uh, I was denied multiple jobs. I, I applied for job after job after job after job and was denied over and over again uh, because I have a felony. Um, so thankfully I have uh, been able to be appointed as a pastor. So I was working as a resident uh, with Urban Village Church, uh, but it was an unpaid position because they no longer had the grant. So. The reason I was trying to get other jobs is so I could do this training that I really believed that was necessary in order for me to continue to grow as a pastor. And so I accepted the position, even though I knew it wasn't paid because I knew of the benefit that would come from the training, which has led me to where I am now. Being a part of that church and learning from them led me to where I am now. 
Um, but I have uh, continued to see, uh, you know, trying to get, now I live in what's called a parsonage. So the church is the, is the church owns the house uh, or the apartment. And so uh, they know I have a felony. <laughs> and so I'm allowed to live here, right? Cause I work here, but uh, so, um, I was just appointed to this new church, Holy Covenant, uh, March 1st. And so this is a brand new uh, experience, but I've been, the, like I said, I've been a local pastor uh, since 2016 and I continue to work through the, the process of ordination and, and hopefully in the next two years, I'll finally be ordained. <laughs> but I have a little bit more uh, interviews and work to do. Uh, so, well, God bless you in your yeah, work and, you. and for the work that you're doing and, and you. have the desire to do. Now, Looking back, are there any lessons that you've learned that might be beneficial to people who may be listening uh, to help them avoid going to prison, or if they've gone to prison, that would help them avoid looping back to prison? Lessons learned. Yeah. I think the support that you have uh, is extremely important in um, being able to survive being in prison, um, being out of prison, um, because it's hard. It's hard. If you don't have support, I've been very lucky. Uh, and here in Chicago, there is a lot of support. There is lots of programs that connect with you immediately as you get out of prison. And that's People's Liberty Project. I found them when I moved here in 2019 and how I wish they would have had a program like that in, um, in any of the other states that I lived in. These are all individuals who were previously previously incarcerated. Uh, and it's basically a support group that we meet once a month uh, and we are able to share our stories. So it's people who were recently released, maybe two days before, and people who were released 21 years ago. And um, so we're all part of this group uh, that help each other uh, to find resources, to, to encourage, to have someone to come talk to so they don't go back to prison, right? So when it feels, People are homeless because um, they can't find housing uh, to be able to, uh, you know, uh, tell them of the different laws that landlords are not allowed to tell us we can't live there any longer because we don't we have a felony in, in Chicago. Right. You're not you're not allowed. So but does everybody follow that? No. So but we're there to help to say you know, these are your rights. Um, and then we also all do uh, legislative work now. So trying to change these laws that keep us from being successful. Um, so advice is to find, a, is find support, um, you know, and, and I know it's, it's hard, but to find the right people in your life to um, help guide you. And when you have a, get a therapist, oh my gosh, I know it's hard. Uh, there's mental health uh, programs that you can get a therapist for free. Um, you know, if you don't have a job, you don't have insurance, you can apply for um, state insurance, Medicaid. Uh, there is, and um, it is hard to find. Um, it takes a little bit of a process uh, to get a therapist, but I 100% recommend everyone have a therapist because it's that person that you can have those conversations with, right? Like you can say whatever it is that you're feeling. Um, and get it off your chest and then have somebody who's there to support you. Um, so therapy, 100%. Uh, I wish I would have had therapy prior to prison. That probably might have helped me stay out of prison. Well, one um, of the things, just in that regard, yeah. that uh, I used to be the director of public safety policy in the Illinois governor's office. Yeah. And one of the things that I was aware of in that position were uh, studies that were being done about what works and what doesn't work. Yeah. 
and helping people avoid uh, recidivism. In other words, uh, that's that's the negative side. More, more positive thing is successfully re-enter community and family life, and uh, repeatedly, the most cost-effective thing that prisons could deliver was cognitive behavioral therapy. Essentially, people have to get their head straight before they can get their life straight. And that doesn't just happen because you, some magic switch turned on. Somebody makes a decision, oh, I'm going to get my life straight. It takes help. And it takes some structure and uh, ongoing support. So cognitive behavioral therapy. Right. Or what finding, Ready Chicago calls cognitive behavioral intervention. Right. Yeah. Finding healing for the trauma that you have experienced is extremely necessary. The trauma that you experience while you're in prison, um, to have places to go, to have those conversations with people that understand. Because our family members, they can support us, but they don't really understand what it really was like to be sitting in those behind those walls and the experiences that we have. Isn't the parallel between that when we talk about trauma and people who are returning from combat experiences who they have supportive, loving families, they have they have a lot of support in the community, but having someone who understands that they can share with that and and professional help that can help them deal with the traumas that they've experienced. Uh, Okay, that's something that. Even loving, supporting friends and family can't offer. So if you're getting out of prison, if a person was getting out of prison in the Chicago area today, where would you recommend that they go for to get connected, to help navigate resources? Well, it's Precious Blood. I, Precious Blood Reentry Services is where we um, have People's Liberty Project. Uh, we, uh, we meet monthly, once a month. Uh, we're on... Um, we do Zoom right now, uh, but we'll continue to do Zoom for people who live outside of the Chicago area. So it's uh, for any individual who's ever been um, impacted by the social, by the justice system. And it can even be, it was a family member, right? Uh, but specifically, it's more for individuals who are, have been previously incarcerated um, that um, are looking for support. Uh, so People's Liberty Project is, I think, one of the one of the most important groups that we have here in Illinois, in Chicago. And we have people from all over the state that join us monthly. Um, and then we um, do, uh, like I said, we, we join in like fully free campaign. I think it's important that you find something that you're, that you're passionate about. What message do you have for people like me who have not experienced what it's like to go to prison get out of prison and face the obstacles to uh, successfully re-entering the community. What message do you have to the rest of us, the, the rest of the community, that the people who are in the impacted community, the people impacted by imprisonment, uh, want everyone else to know and understand? That uh, individuals who have been sentenced to prison or jail, that they did their sentence. If we have been released from prison, we did our sentence. We shouldn't have to continue to uh, be um, marginalized and oppressed 
because of something that we have already paid the cost for. We have already paid back to society by whatever we were sentenced to, right? Whether it was sentenced to two years or 20 years, that that we have already done that, that sentence and that we should not be sentenced to life. And, and we are sentenced to life outside of the walls. We are, we are still not free. We continue to have to face barrier after barrier. If you have a drug charge, you cannot get federal grants to go to school. How do you better yourself? You can't get certain jobs. There's still, uh, I still cannot work in a hospital. I, I am a, a licensed pastor now and I could still not work in a hospital because I have a felony. There are other areas uh, in Illinois alone that we are not able to um, work or get education um, or even live in certain areas, right? There, there are apartments and uh, housing that is still told that we can't live there. Um, you know, uh, that you, there's many states that say that you can't vote. You have no right to vote um, if you have a felony. Uh, or while you're uh, in prison, you can't vote, that you no longer have a voice. Um, and I, I just think that it's important that we know no matter what the crime was, no matter what the crime was, that these people, uh, we are still human. Uh, we are still um, live here and we have every right to, as, as that everybody else has, to, to be successful in life, to succeed in life. Right. And whatever that looks like, whatever those dreams are, we should still be offered those same things. Uh, we did our time. Our time is done. We should not have to continue to be um, harmed by the system. Thank you for that message. An observation. It's interesting that so many of the people who I have uh, talked to as guests on this program have found healing in getting involved in helping others who are traveling the same path. And here you are devoting yourself completely, not just to that, but helping others who, uh, along their spiritual paths and their, the struggles that they have in dealing with life as a pastor. And I say again, God bless you in your work and for your work. Thank you. Pastor Jennifer Stevens, for being on this program. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for allowing our voices to be heard. It is so important. This is Justice Voices, stories that need to be told, voices that need to be heard.